Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 23, Joshua chapter 23. While you're turning there, let me give you the aim of this morning's, excuse me, I'll probably say morning only about a dozen times today. So I'll do my best to say afternoon, but I have a feeling more mornings are coming. Our focus is this. We want to see, spiritually see, that the Lord our God is he who is faithful to fulfill all the good words he has spoken to us, gives us rest. We want to see that he gives us rest, but who is the he? The Lord our God is he who is faithful to fulfill all the good words that he has spoken. Uh, I appreciate the many voices who have already prayed for the preaching of God's word today. Uh, several during our congregational prayer and then Rick just voiced again. But as Derek said in his prayer, I, I, I want to pray again before we dive into the text together, ask the Lord for his help. Father, we do pray now that you would be gracious to us, that you would open our eyes so that we might see, like Joshua says three times in the text today, to see, that we may see wonderful things in your word. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts and our souls to receive the good words of God. And Father, we pray that your preaching today not come simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how many people in this room are Memphis Grizzly fans. Um, I'd ask you to give a show of hands, but I assume most people would probably raise their hand. Everybody's not a basketball fan. I get that. It's okay if you're not. You can still follow along in today's sermon. But Friday night, a handful of people from Grace Church, I wasn't one of them, but I was aware several attended the Grizzlies home game against one of their up and coming rivals, the Memphis, or excuse me, the Minnesota Timberwolves. And Memphis, behind their superstar, Ja Morant, got the win. Last season, the Grizzlies tied the franchise record uh, for most wins in a season with 56. And they eliminated that same Minnesota Timberwolves team from the playoffs, again, behind their star player, Ja Morant. If you've ever seen Ja play, he's spectacular. He's already one of the top players in the league and has a growing reputation as one who has the ability to close out games. When the game's on the line, you can put the ball in his hands and good things happen. He's practically indefensible one-on-one. -on -one. That's how good he is. And it's arguable that he's not only Memphis's best player, but one of the best in the NBA these days. 
There's always going to be debate over who the best player is in any given sport. And you know the long-time arguments that take place all the time about who the greatest of all time is. Well, Memphis's star, John Morant, has on occasion, when he's performing well, let the arena know that he is that guy. After making an acrobatic dunk or a clutch shot with the game on the line, John Morant has pointed to himself, looked, into the, looked at the crowd or into the TV camera and said, I'm him. I'm that guy. He even has a three letter tattoo on the top of his hand. H I M him. In case anyone wasn't sure that he is that guy. Ja is beaming with talent and confidence and rightfully so he is an amazing player. But did you know that in the same playoffs that Ja finished off the Minnesota Timberwolves, with one big shot after another, he missed a shot at the buzzer that would have won the game for Memphis in the very next series against the Golden State Warriors who ultimately eliminated the Grizzlies from the playoffs. As a matter of fact, that shot probably changed the momentum of that series. In spite all of his talent and bravado, Ja is actually not H-I-M, at least not all the time. He's not perfect. He sometimes fails. He sometimes doesn't point to the crowd or beat his chest, but rather hangs his head, walks off the court in defeat as the crowd cheers another winner. The reality is no man has ever been, nor could ever be, capital H-I-M. There's only one who has never failed. There's only one who is always him. For the Lord your God is he. This afternoon, we wanna see that the Israelites of Joshua's day got a close look at their unfailing God. He always fulfilled his promises. He has never failed, not one time. God has never tasted defeat. He's always been faithful. His record is spotless. He is presently faithful and he will eternally remain dependable in every way. This afternoon, we want to see how the unfailing good words of God rest on the unfailing good God. This afternoon, we want to see from the text what Joshua is telling the people of Israel to see. Three times he tells them to look at something. And so today we're going to look at those three C's, S-E-E. The first thing that we want to see, and we're about to dive into the text together, is the unique character of God. We want to see together in God's word the unique character of God. Look with me in Joshua chapter 23, in the first three verses. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side 
and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. Joshua is old in years as he gathers the leaders of Israel into his presence. He knows that his time has come. And this is the opportune time. It's the right time for him to give final instructions to his trusted leaders. So he gathers, according to the text, elders, heads, judges, and officers, representatives of all the people of Israel come into Joshua's presence so that he can speak these most important instructions. And Joshua gives a quick survey of the faithfulness of God over his life and essentially preaches the narrative that Matt preached last week. Perhaps you're wondering if you're about to get the second week in a row of the faithfulness of God. Matt's sermon title last week was not one word failed. And the sermon title for this week is the unfailing good words of God. They're almost identical titles because Joshua is recounting in chapter 23 what Matt preached last week. So Joshua is saying the same thing to his people in his day that Matt said to us last week from God's word. God is faithful. But I want to draw your attention this afternoon to three things in Joshua's survey about the character of God, how unique the character of God is. So the first thing about God's unique character is he is the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God is he, according to the text. One of the first things Joshua does in his farewell speech is to point the leaders of Israel directly to God. Joshua mentions the Lord 17 times in this chapter. In 14 of those mentions, he uses the name the Lord your God. Not just the Lord, but the Lord your God. Joshua is talking about Jehovah your Elohim. Jehovah is the one who is known as the covenant keeping God. So he's laying before the leaders of Israel that God keeps his word, that he always fulfills his covenants. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will uphold the covenants that I have made to your forefathers, the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Moses who delivered you from Egypt. Elohim is the name that Joshua uses for God. And as he speaks, Jehovah, your Elohim, the Lord, your God, 
All of this comes into view for the leaders, just who Joshua is speaking about. This is the name that is used 30 times in Genesis, Elohim, the God of creation, infinite in power and might. But he doesn't just say the Lord, your God. In this verse, he says, the Lord, your God is he. There's a verb attached to Elohim. It happens twice in this chapter. The Lord, your God is he. He is the great I am. He is the one. He is Jehovah, your I am. Joshua is holding out to the leaders of Israel, their God. And every representative present is fully aware of the significance of the name being used by Joshua. They would have been reminded of God's promising words to Moses from Exodus chapter six. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God almighty, but By my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So as Joshua speaks to these leaders in his dying days, he's repeating a name on purpose. The Lord, your God, the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God is he, because he wants them to remember that the God who made all these promises, who made these covenants has fulfilled them in their day. This is the God he is pointing them to. They would be reminded that God on the reputation of his name, Jehovah, your Elohim had fulfilled all that he had promised. He is the one who keeps his covenants. He is the one who is faithful. He is the one who has never failed. Jehovah, is he. Elohim is he. The Lord your God is he. The second piece of the unique character of God that I want you to see that Joshua draws out is the phrase that follows. He doesn't just say for the Lord your God is he, but he gives some description behind it. Who has been fighting for you? Joshua pushed further into their memory. God has been fighting for you. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter one, toward the end there, verse 29, he says, then I said to you, do not be shocked 
nor fear them, the enemies. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you have come to this place. See, he's saying to him, Abraham's God and the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac's God, Jacob's God, Moses' God, the God who promised the land of Canaan, the God who conquered all the enemies along the way, the God who provided for you in the wilderness, that God, keep your eyes fixed on him. Keep looking to him. See what he has done. Don't forget. These words in Deuteronomy were also to be recalled. They remember how the Lord fought their battles over enemies that they believed were too great. Time after time, the Lord gave them victory. Look back and see the trail of victories. Look at God's power, his might, his faithfulness. God is Jehovah, Sabaoth the God who fights your battles. Know him, don't forget him. They would have also been reminded of the generation who perished in the wilderness for their grumbling and unbelief. These words would have been a challenge to continue to trust the Lord who has never lost a battle. He is always victorious, he is trustworthy, he is faithful. See him, see that God. But I want you to see the third unique character, characteristic of God. Look with me back in verse one. He says, now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. Notice in verse one that by defeating all the enemies of Israel, God had provided rest for his people. Think about that. Slaves in Egypt for so long, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, then battle after battle after battle after they crossed the river. And now, finally now, they're given rest. They have rest. Notice in verse one that by defeating all the enemies of Israel, God has provided his people rest. God conquers the enemies of his people and gives his people rest. God gives rest. That's at the heart of who God is. He gives rest to his people. God conquers the enemies of his people in order to give them rest. However, this rest provided to Israel in the final days of Joshua's life is only a symbol. It's only a taste of the rest to come. The rest that Joshua speaks of is temporary. It's conditional. There were still enemies in the land as we look at the rest of chapter 23, we'll see that. There were still people who served other gods. The land that Israel would ultimately inhabit had people who still worshiped their idols. They posed a temptation for Israel to follow after other gods. It still remained on earth. There'll always be the threat of the enemy attacking the believer. There'll always be temptation to leave God, 
to embrace something else. So long as we're on earth, we'll always face that temptation. But in this moment in history, Jehovah Sabaoth provides rest for his people. And the rest Israel experiences in Joshua's day, again, is just a taste of the eternal rest that Jesus will provide for God's people from the enemies of their soul. Joshua wanted the people of his day to see the Lord your God is fighting for your rest. He's done all of this so that you might rest, just as Christ did all that he did on the cross in order that you might have eternal rest. But Joshua doesn't just want them to see the unique character of God. Joshua also wants them to see the fulfilled promises of God. Look with me in verses four and five. He says, see, I want you to see this. I have a portion to you, these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. With all the nations which I have cut off, from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the settling of the sun, excuse me, to the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Joshua is now saying to his leaders, look at what is before you. The work is not yet complete. And though there is still work to be done. He wants the leaders to know that it is God who has brought them thus far. And that same God will continue to fight for them. Though enemies will remain, God never ceases to thrust out and to drive away the enemy. The enemies aren't going away. The temptations will remain, but so does God. And so does his fighting spirit on your behalf. He will continue to fight for you. I'm not sure what enemies you may be facing at this moment. What are the temptations? What are the struggles? But I can say that no matter the enemy and how formidable that enemy might be, God will continue to fight against that enemy on your behalf. Anything that lies between you and the rest that God provides, God will fight against. Anything that lies between you and the rest God provides, he will fight against. I do see a biblical principle that we must latch onto in the midst of difficulty in this life that we live, this battle that we fight. The way that we walk by faith in the present is by looking at the faithfulness of God in the past and believing on that God for the future. So that as we walk today and difficulties come, the enemy looks too opposing. We have to look back. We have to look back at God's faithfulness. We have to see that God is fighting on our behalf. We have to remember the victories that God has given us, the promises that he has kept and remember. That's how we walk in the present. But we also have to look to the future and faith believe that God. 
if fear creeps in, if anxiety starts to gain momentum, look to the proven faithfulness of God. Remember that he has always fulfilled his promises to you and walk in faith. Trust again in that God. God doesn't just promise to continue to fight on our our behalf, but he promises that we will receive the reward that he is fighting for. See, when God conquered king after king after king, 31 of them to be exact, that conspired against the people of Israel, God had something in mind. He had the rest of his people in mind. And the rest of his people was the possession of the land of Canaan. So he didn't just fight their battles. He promised them a reward. He promised them a possession. When Christ was being crucified on the cross, he was not only defeating sin, the great enemy of our soul, he was also imputing to us his righteousness that affords us rewards, the rewards of his suffering on the cross, the right to be in the presence of the almighty God for all eternity without fear with hope, with joy in worship. Christ has fought the battle for our redemption and he will be perfecting what he accomplished on the cross until he returns. He will continue to sanctify his people. There's not a single promise spoken in scripture that God has not and will not fulfill. Just as the Lord your God promised are the words that we find in Joshua 23. See the fulfilled promises of God in scripture and in your life. But there's a third thing that Joshua wants the leaders of Israel to see before he passes. In verse 14, he says, now behold, now see, there's something else that I want you to see. Today, I'm going the way of all the earth. That means he's going to die. And you know, in all your hearts, And in all your souls, that not one word of all the good words, which the Lord, your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. In these words, the kind of scene Joshua is calling his leaders to do is in, is internally. I want you to look inward. I want you to test your heart. I want you to know in your soul is what he says in verse 14. Know in all your hearts and in all your souls that the Lord your God is unfailing. Don't just hear the testimony. Don't let that just brush by. Know in your heart and soul, God is unfailing. He'll never fail. He's faithful. He fulfills promises. His words are good. I have a challenge for you. Start this exercise this week. Survey your life. Survey your life. Look back and find one time that God has failed you. Survey your life and find one time 
that God has failed you. Search for a single incident where God has not been faithful. Attempt to discover if there is one moment where God can be found lacking. Is there a single biblical promise that God has not fulfilled? Sometimes we face an opposing enemy. Sometimes life circumstances call into question in our minds, the faithfulness of God. As most of you know, I had a difficult season this summer questioning why my younger brother, not quite 44, passed away. Perhaps you can think of a time or circumstance where your struggle to see the good hand of God in that particular occasion The question then becomes, not was God faithful, but can I see the faithfulness of God? The question is not, is God faithful, but is my desire biblical? God will often let you down if you are desiring an outcome that is not according to his glory and our good. Or maybe I should say your idea of God will let you down, but God won't. God is faithful. His words are good. And sometimes our, our inability to see the faithful goodness of God clouds our view. But make no mistake, God is unfailing. God is faithful. God is good. If God's words to us aren't good, then we need to ask God for help to see how they're good. If God's actions toward us don't seem faithful, then we need to ask God to help us see his faithfulness. I've been there. Go to him. Go consider the words of God, seek his face in prayer and wait for understanding. God's words are good. They will never fail. They will never disappoint. Go see the unfailing good words of God. Well, Joshua not only appeals to the people of Israel, to the leaders of his day, to see the unique character of God, to see the fulfilled promises of God and to see the good words of God. But he calls them to action. The aim that Joshua has in mind when he tells them to see these things is that they would, seeing these things, being reminded of these things about God would foster courage in their hearts. It would give them strength to press on. Look with me back in verse six, Joshua chapter 23, verse six, be very firm then. If you see these things, be firm. If you see the unique character of God, the Lord your God is he who is fighting for you, who gives you rest, who fulfills his promises, whose words are good to us. If you see that God, be firm. 
The Hebrew word here means to be strong, courageous, steadfast, resolute. We are called to be resolute in three particular actions that Joshua lays out for us in the text. The first one is this. This is, this is our application. The same way that Joshua was trying to get the leaders to apply what he was wanting them to see. God's calling us to action as we see those same things that Joshua points out. So he says, be resolute. Here's number one, to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. We are called to keep or do all that is written because these commands serve a wise path forward to avoid the pitfalls of serving lesser gods. See, Joshua knew that if they didn't remain resolute to obey the words of God, that the things that were happening around them would draw their attention. There would be an appeal to these other gods, these lesser gods, they would have an attraction. And so he says, keep, remain on your guard, stay alert to the commands of God, work, act according to his commands. God gives us commands not to control us, but rather guide us away from the danger and guide us to himself. See, obedience to God leads to safety. Obedience delivers us from the enemy. Obedience illuminates the beauty of God. Obedience keeps us pure. Obedience spares us from slavery or to say it positively, provides freedom. See, God has all authority to make whatever command he wants to make, but he chooses commands for us that are for our good. God doesn't abuse his authority. Perhaps you, you know what that looks like. You've suffered under the abuse of some kind of authority figure. God's not like that. God's commands have our good in mind. God's commands are so that we might thrive. God's commands are so that we might be free. Be resolute to keep the commands of God. The second resolution that we ought to have, be very firm to cling to the Lord. Look with me in verse eight, but you are to cling to the Lord, your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord your God has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. Why? For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. To cling is, the, the, the word here is to join together, to cleave, to attach, to unite with. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2:24 regarding Adam and Eve. It's the, the first marriage to, to cling together. We, we preach it every time we, we do a, a, a wedding. 
This is the same word used here. We are to be united with God. We are to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Cling to the one who fights for you, who drives out the enemy. We are safe from the enemy when we cling to Jesus. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you. The only one who can fight with certain victory on your behalf. God will close the deal. He'll finish it. Cling to him. Cling to him. So we should not only keep his commands for our good, but we should cling to the Lord for our safety. And then the third thing that I want us to see as far as application goes, be very firm then, be resolute to love the Lord. Look with me in verse 11. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Be diligent to love God. Sounds pretty simple, right? Just love God. The greatest threat to Israel was never 31 kings or a river during flood season or an impenetrable wall or being captive in Egypt or Pharaoh's army. That was never the greatest threat to Israel. The greatest threat to Israel was always Israel. Or to say it more clearly, the greatest threat to Israel was their lack of love to God. That's always been the greatest threat. Joshua's charge was to take heed of yourselves is what he says in verse 11. So take diligent heed to yourselves. Why? Because your love will wane. He's reminding them, love God, love this faithful God. God had already given them victory and provided rest for the people of Israel. But moving forward, the people of Israel's obedience would be the greatest threat to their well-being. Our obedience is the greatest hindrance to our sanctification. If you want to remain in the victories rest or the victorious rest of the Lord, you must love God above all else. What does obedience look like? Love to God through faith in Christ. Love to God through faith in Christ. Where do we get this from? Look with me in Hebrews chapter four, verses eight through 11. Hebrews chapter four, verses eight through 11. It says this about Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, he's talking eternally here, right? If he had given, if he had given them the kind of rest that Christ provides on the cross. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. That would have been enough. Here's what eternal rest is. But that's not what Joshua was holding out for his people. He could only give them that temporary conditional rest. Verse nine of Hebrews chapter four. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Faith in Christ. So that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. 
Joshua chapter 23, verse 12, as Joshua expounds on this love for God, he says, for if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be snares and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. If we choose to live, to live life without love to God, his goodness toward us will disappear. And we'll be left facing the brunt of the enemy's assault and the consequences of our sin. He's talking about faith in Christ. The kind of love that puts all your hope in what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And it's this lack of love that Joshua leaves the leaders with this hard warning. We ought to heed Joshua's warning in these final two verses of Joshua chapter 23. He says this in verse 15, listen to the contrast, listen to the shift in these two verses. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you. So the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given to you. Remember all the good words of God fulfilled, every promise, yes and amen in Christ. He's fought all the battles. He's never failed. He's always been faithful to you. Remember that God, love him. There's only one way to not receive the rewards, the possession of the land, this eternal rest. There's only one way not to receive that. God's done all the work. He's faithful. He will see it to the end. There's only one way to miss the possession, to miss the reward, to lose the rest. Turn away from the good words of God. And when we do that, we receive the threats. God's threats aren't empty. God's threats are just as certain as his mercies. His curses are just as certain as his blessings. To the same degree which God fulfills all his good promises to the people of Israel and to us today, he will also carry out the warnings we refuse to heed. The one way to end up on the wrong side of God's words is to not love God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Choose to love lesser gods and the promise of eternal rest 
will not be yours. Latch on to some other idol in your heart and the rest that God promises disappears. Go serve other gods, bow down to them, transgress the covenant of God and you will stir up his anger and you will perish as quickly and easily as the enemies of God in Canaan. Our self-righteousness will crumble like the walls of Jericho. But faith in Jesus Christ, love to God, opens the door for the God who will fight to give you his rest. We wanna see that the Lord our God is he who is faithful to fulfill all the good words that he has spoken in order to give us rest, eternal rest. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as Joshua spoke this parting word to the leaders of Israel, Father, I pray that we would see what Joshua wanted his leaders to see. That you are the Lord, your God. That you fight battles, that you give rest, that you fulfill promises, that your words are good. Lord, let us believe it. Let us see it in Christ. Let us see the fulfillment of all those promises that Joshua speaks of in Christ on the cross. That our sins have been paid for, that your righteousness has been imputed to us. Lord, let us believe. Give us the courage to keep your commands, to cling to the Lord and to love you above all else. And Father, we pray, far be it from us. Lord, be gracious to every listener in this room to heed the warning that Joshua gave his leaders. Father, keep us from turning to other gods. Cause us to love you and nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.